0: Now he's not through with that. Verse 13, "...raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever." He said in verse 12 that they were clouds carried about by the winds. In other words, these men generally speak on of event every Sunday. They pick up something out of the newspaper or something they've seen on TV, and that becomes the subject of the sermon for the coming Lord's Day. They don't really give the interpretation of the Word of God that would be applicable for the day, but they are just driven about like the clouds are here, that they're raging waves of the sea. They just get up and rant, and they're unashamed about it all. How tragic it is. I have literally hundreds of letters from young preachers went through seminaries where they were never taught the Word of God. And these men want to be expositors of the Word. They don't want to be just nothing in the world but raging waves of the sea, or trees without fruit, or clouds without water. Now, they are wandering stars. They are just wandering through space. It means that they are lawless that they're following no course whatsoever. And again, reserve the blackness of darkness forever. Now, again, may I present to you hell. One symbol is fire. The other is the blackness of darkness. And I think we need to emphasize that today. That seems to be, to me, more frightful than anything else. And if you've ever been down in Carlsbad Caverns and had them turn out the light You know what real darkness is. I'd hate to be down there forever, my friend, how tragic it would be. Now, I'm going to talk about hell when we get to it over in the book of Revelation. We're not there yet, and I'm glad for that. But a great deal is put upon fire as far as hell is concerned. I believe hell is literal, but to say it is a literal fire isn't quite adequate. For this reason, there will be spiritual creatures, and there will be man. And the worst sins of man are actually spiritual sins. Unbelief is an awful sin. Therefore, physical punishment wouldn't quite be adequate. I think that fire is a very faint symbol of the reality. In other words, I think men in hell will wish that it was a literal fire. Because it's going to be so much worse. And another figure that we see here, the blackness of darkness forever. And to me, that's far more frightening than the other. And I believe that they carry the darkness with them. It's not only physical darkness, but spiritual darkness. John Milton, who had an insight into many spiritual truths, he had this in one of his poems. He that has light within his own clear breast, may sit in the center and enjoy bright day. But he that hides a dark soul and foul thoughts, benighted walks under the midday sun, himself is his own dungeon. I think that is tremendous. My feeling today is that the thing that makes hell are those that go there. There's a place here on earth been called Hell's Kitchen. Well, is it a different kind of real estate there than some other place? No, it was the people that were there. And it's man in his spiritual darkness and the physical darkness. That to me is frightful beyond words. May I say to you, this may give a little different conception of this place. Now, we come to another remarkable passage of Scripture. And it's the only place that occurs in the Word of God. It's here in Jude. And it reads now, and I'm reading verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints." And verse 15, to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I think every time that Men blaspheme but taking the name of Christ. They're going to give an answer for that someday. You don't speak lightly of him by any means because that is a sin. He's the son of God. And today this generation will have a great deal to answer to. But now the thing that is remarkable here, here is the prophecy of Enoch. Now you will not find that prophecy... In the Old Testament, because it's not there. You have the record of Enoch, of a man in that antediluvian period before Noah, who walked with God and God took him. He removed him from this earthly scene. The record is there. But the fact that he prophesied, we are told nothing about that at all. Now, Enoch here is the one that is mentioned in that antediluvian period before Noah. And he is the man that walked with God, because Enoch is not a too familiar name. Now, the quotation here is a quotation from the apocryphal book of Enoch. And this is a book that was known to the early church fathers of the second century. And then it was lost for centuries Of course, there were a few fragments of it about. And then it was found by Bruce in the Ethiopic Bible, that is, in Ethiopia in 1773. And it consists of revelations purporting to have been given to Enoch and to Noah. Now, the object of the book is to vindicate the ways of God and his providential dealings with man. And it sets forth the retribution reserved for sinners, and to show that the world is under the immediate government of God. Now, Enoch prophesied with respect to these false teachers of these last days. And that's a remarkable thing. Now, God apparently did not want that book in the canon of Scripture, or it would have been in the canon of Scripture, you may be sure. And godly man recognized that it was an apocryphal book. But here is one prophecy that Jude gives that God wanted to put into the record, into his holy word. And it is a prophecy concerning the coming of Christ with his saints. Now, Enoch was translated and He was removed without dying, and the church is to be removed from the earth one day, and those that are in the church at that time will be removed without dying. Most of the church has already passed through the doorway of death. They are to be caught up to meet together with the living to meet the Lord in the air. Now, that's not a teaching of the Old Testament at all, though Enoch is a representative of that This is what happened to him before the judgment of the flood came. He was removed from the earthly scene. Now, before the great tribulation comes, why, the church that's on the earth, the true church, that is, believers, they will be removed from this earth. And they will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, after the great tribulation, the Lord Jesus comes to the earth then. You see at the rapture, he does not come to the earth. Believers have caught up to meet him. When we say that is the second coming of Christ, it's not quite that. If you mean he's coming to the earth, no, the rapture is the removal of the church. In fact, that is exactly what Paul calls it in Second Thessalonians, as we've seen in the second chapter. Ephestamians means departure, and the departure must come first, he says. That's the next thing on the agenda of God. Now, that departure is translated an apostasy. Well, the apostasy is a departure from the faith. Well, when the true church leaves, and those that are left in the organization that are not believers, you will have the total departure of the visible church here on earth from the faith. But the true church is departed from the earth. That makes this, let me say, friends, a remarkable prophecy of Scripture. And I would like very much to give you the translation that, again, Dr. Wiest has, because he's given so many penetrating truths in his translation. He says here in verse 14, and 15. And there prophesied also with respect to these, the seventh from Adam, Enoch, saying, Behold, there comes the Lord with his holy myriads. And here, it's quite interesting. It has to do with the numbers, and the saints here can be supernatural or natural, which would mean the church that will come back with him. But if the church is going to come back with him to reign on earth, sometime before it had to leave the earth to be able to come back to the earth. You just have to have a rapture if you believe Christ is coming to the earth with the saints someday. Now, will you notice the emphasis is upon numbers to execute judgment. Now, it's the return of Christ in judgment. He gave that in the Olivet Discourse himself, and it's mentioned again and again in the Word of God. We've seen it in the Old Testament, to execute judgment against all and to convict all those who are destitute of reverential awe towards God. And the thing is that they are ungodly, and they're ungodly in the sense that they leave God out. That is the emphasis that we've called attention to before. They just do not have a reverential awe of God. And that is something that's quite popular today. Now, concerning all their works, they're to be judged concerning all their works of impiety, works which are not godly works, but actually would be anti-God, which they impiously Performed and concerning all the harsh things which impious sinners spoke against him. And here we have that tremendous judgment that is coming upon the earth. Now, having given here this prophecy of Enoch, and it's a great prophecy, the organized church that will be in total apostasy at that time We'll go into the great tribulation after the rapture. And at the rapture, this apostate church is ruptured. The true believers leave and the make-believers remain here on earth. And they are here when he comes to judge man in that day. Now, in verse 16, he says, these are murmurers. Now, he's talking about these apostate. And he gives us further identification of them. Actually, you just can't miss it, friends. The picture that you have here is a picture that I think is tremendous. I want to read to you verse 16. And then we're going to come back to this to dwell on it, because here is another great truth that we have in this section. These are murmurous complainers, walking after their own lusts, and that means their desires. Actually, their desires do not have to be base. They could be lovers of good music. That could be the thing. The point is, anything spiritual, anything that relates to God, is entirely left out. And their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Now, five things are mentioned here concerning them. They're murmurers. Two, they're complainers. Three, they walk after their own desires. Four, their mouth speaketh great swelling words. And then five, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. This is the picture that is given to them here. Now, let's look at this. Murmurous means they mutter complaints. That is the picture that's given of them here. They complain about everything. They complain about their own lot in life. They're discontented. They're never satisfied. Have you heard the testimony of someone who's been genuinely converted? I was just looking about, seeing if I could pick up a letter here. I have a a whole sheaf of them, but I can't lift one out just now. But we have literally hundreds of letters here. People tell about that they were discontented, dissatisfied, and unhappy with their lot. And then they came to Christ, and all of that changed. Well, the thing is that that is the picture of the murmurers, that's an Another identification of the apostate. And he's a complainer. That is something else that he does. He complains, blames his lot in life. If he recognizes God at all, he blames God for everything that has happened to him. Then you have here this statement about they walk after their own desires, And those desires actually could be desires that would not be base, as we think of it, as immorality. It would be that which would leave God out altogether. In fact, it could be religious. They could enjoy a liturgy or a ritual and that type of thing and find a certain amount of satisfaction in it. But down deep in their heart, they're discontented. And then their mouths speaking great swelling words. They are great at applauding others, and they say a lot of things that are not true about individuals. I always notice an introduction that's given to me, and I know whether it's true or not. And sometimes they're quite flowery, and when they are, I wonder about the brother, whether he really knows me or not. This business is speaking great, swelling words, flowery speech that has no substance in it whatsoever and does not actually have the Word of God in it. It's like fuzz and fizz and foam. It's that type of speaking that really has no content in it at all. I think the politicians, I was rather amused listening to one the other night that was being questioned. And he brought in a great deal of modern words that are being overworked today. He talked about a certain program that was productive. And he talked a great deal about that we must do this to help people, you know, that type of thing. Well, when I analyzed it, when he got through, he hadn't said anything. He had just been talking, that's all, and had not committed himself to anything whatsoever. Well, there are a great many today that are in the ministry that talk like that too, by the way, and having men's person in admiration because of advantage. This simply means that they do not look to God, but they look to man. They look to man for their promotion, their advantage. They do not look to God at all. This is something that we've had up before. You remember James had something to say about this over in the second chapter of the book of James, verse 1. Listen to this. "'My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel,' And there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. I went into a church some time ago where I was to preach, and they did not know me very well. That is, the ushers certainly didn't. And so I thought that I would just go in and not identify myself at all. Well, when I walked up, two ushers were busy talking to each other. And they paid no attention to me. And so I just waited, never said a word. And finally, one of them said, you want a bulletin? I said, yes, thank you. And I took a bulletin. And then he said, where do you want to sit? And I said, well, I don't know. Just where would you want to seat me? Well, he says, how about taking that seat right there? Well, I wasn't about to take me down front, and there were plenty of seats down front. I'd got there very early, and he was not in a friendly mood at all. So that I never said anything. I just walked on down. I didn't sit down. I walked on back. And then I came out on the platform later, and I looked back at that usher. Believe me, he was white. After the service, he came up to me very apologetically, you know. He said, I didn't know you were going to be our preacher today. You were Dr. McGee and that sort of thing. And I said to him, I said, well, it really wasn't very important for you to recognize me at all because, very frankly, I was going to preach here today. And I was going to preach here regardless of whether the ushers let me in or not. But I said, I really think it is important that you usher strangers and visitors To a seat and be very friendly to them i think that would be important now that's the thing that you find today and i have noted this especially in church circles do you find this i've noticed certain schools one school will give a man from another school a doctor's degree something he didn't work for so that school in turn turns around and invites the brother down there that gave him a degree they give him a degree up there And so they can call each other doctor from then on. And then they talk about how wonderful each one is. And that's true sometime of preachers. We go to a place and the pastor there introduces us as some great person, as if we were and we're not. And then he comes over to our place and we introduce him as some great person. And he may be, I don't know. But the point is that that's the method that is pursued and frankly, that's the method of apostates. They do not look to God. They are not concerned to hear the Lord Jesus say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. They're more interested in the applause of the crowd, of what people say. And I think that today is one of the curses of the ministry. And I do not mean to be ugly or pick on my brethren, because there are so many wonderful men, and many of them very courageous But I was at a certain conference, and a very timid preacher came up to me. And he said to me, do you preach in your church the way that you are speaking here? And I said, why, certainly, why not? Well, he says, why, if I preach that way in my church, I'm confident that I would have to resign. Well, I said, I certainly feel sorry for you, and I think the church is in a very bad way why i said of course i speak that way i said the message that you just heard me give i gave it in my own church before i came up here i practiced on them so i could give it to this group up here i don't quite understand that today but that does happen to be one of the marks of an apostate having men's person in advantage in admiration because of some advantage they will get from it in other words They're looking to man for promotion and not looking to God for promotion. Now, this is certainly a condemnation of these men. Now, we've come to the section that I've labeled the occupation of believers in days of apostasy. Now, we're going to see this matter of what can believers do in days of apostasy? What can real believers do? Well, we'll be looking at that, but here, believers are warned by apostles that these apostates would come. In other words, this ought not to disturb us. This is something that God has permitted, and he's permitted it for a purpose, and therefore we need to recognize that. Now, he says here, and you will notice that he uses the term, but beloved, now He's turning away from the apostates, describing them. And he says, but beloved. In other words, he's turning the page, as it were, turning the coin over. Now he's talking to the beloved. Now, the beloved are not those beloved of Jude. However, I think he loved them because he wouldn't have written this strong epistle if he hadn't loved them. He's telling them the truth. But the word that he uses means they're beloved of God. These are the ones that are experiencing the love of God in their lives. And for that reason, they're called beloved. Now, he says to them here, remember, remember. This is something that you and I are going to carry over into the next life, a memory. You remember the Lord Jesus said to that rich man that died And he went to a place of torment. He said to him, remember, remember in your lifetime you had these things. Now, that's part of this darkness that's going to be the state of the lost. I think that when they look back, they're going to remember what they did in this life. I think all of us are going to do that. Thank God our sins are blotted out because, friends, if they were not, we'd be tortured in our own minds because memory is carried over. And all the way through the Word of God, you will find that we're told to remember. In other words, they are to remember the Word of God. You and I should know the Word of God so that our memory can call it up when we need to have these great truths brought to our attention. In other words... Believers should know the word of God. In other words, you should go through the Bible with us for five years. And I think that's very scriptural, by the way. And he says, now, but beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Apparently, Jude was not an apostle. And he takes a very humble position, though the half-blood brother of the Lord Jesus Takes a very humble position. He actually uses the apostles to corroborate what he's going to say. He says, he's done this before, you remember. In fact, he said, what I'm going to write to you about the apostasy. It's not new with me. I'm not the only one that's written on it. Others have written on it. They've written of it beforehand. Now he says, here you are to remember the words that were spoken to you by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you're to know what the Word of God has to say. And we're going to see before we finish this epistle, that's all essential. I do not believe that you can stand in this world for God and not trip up unless you have a knowledge of the Word of God today. It is essential. I have seen individual after individual, both men and women, trip up and fall And you can attribute everyone that I know about, you can attribute to a lack of a knowledge of the Word of God. How important it is for us to know what the Word of God has to say. Now, we come to something that is very important. And here is a place where I feel I need a special anointing of the Holy Spirit to even speak about it. Because this is something that is, I feel, all-important and a distinction that's not always made today. Now, will you listen to this? How they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These are they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. This is very important for us to see. Now, as we move into it, I want to drop back and give you that we translation of verse 16. Now, speaking of these apostates, these are complainers against their lot, ordering their course of conduct in accordance with their own passionate cravings, and their mouths speaking immoderate, extravagant things, catering to personalities for the sake of advantage. Now... He says, but you remember what the apostles said to you. They told you they were going to come mockers in the last time, and they would walk after their own ungodly lusts. That is, their desires are totally apart from God and the will of God. In other words, he defines them here as being sensual. They separate themselves, and they do not have the Holy Spirit. Now, I feel I should pass on to you here something that's very important. First of all, they cause divisions in the church. They separate themselves. They cause divisions in the church. They draw a line through the church and set off one part from another. That's what liberalism did. It split the church the organized church. The great denominations were split by liberals. It wasn't the fundamentalists who divided. He just held to what the church had always believed. They were first called modernists that came along. Why? They wanted to change things, be modern. And that's the way they got that name. They never liked it. They like the name of liberal today. But the liberal, instead of being broad-minded, is to my judgment, Whether he's in theology or politics, he's the most narrow-minded person in the world and, frankly, a dangerous man to deal with because he'll deal with you in a vitriolic manner and with bitterness and hatred and will not mind hurting you. I can assure you that. Now, that is the thing Dr. Vinson says. They cause divisions in the church. Now, they're called sensual, and the word is sukkakos. We get our word psychology from that. It means a life that centers about the individual, that is, the I. It's an egotistical way of living so that the individual becomes all-important. I come first. It is selfish. It is natural. It means he's unrenewed. He's not born again at all. Now, I want to read a statement of Alford here. He says, the suki, that is the soul, is the center of the personal being, the eye of each individual. It is in each man bound to the spirit, man's higher part and to the body. Now, man's lower part, drawn upwards by the one, downward by the other. Now, he who gives himself up to the lower appetites, is sarcocos that is fleshly. He who by communion of his spirit with God's spirit is employed in the higher aims of his being, and he is a pneumaticos man, a spiritual man. And the natural man, the sensual man, he's a selfish man that lives like an animal. He wants to get all he can. He wants to eat all he can. He wants to get all the money he can. He wants to get all the favor that he can down here. He lives entirely for himself. Now, this has to do with man in his makeup today. When you and I come to Christ and trust him as Savior, we are given a new nature. That new nature can now respond to the Holy Spirit of God. We're renewed in the spiritual part of our life. Now we can respond to the Spirit of God. But we still have that old nature. We're still fleshly. We can live in the flesh. Now, Paul had a great deal to say about that. And I want to turn back to the 8th of Romans. He says in Romans 8, verse 5, "...for they that are after the flesh..." Now, this is that natural man. This is the apostate. They do mind the things of the flesh. That's all they're interested in. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. They seek to please God. Now, verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death. That is, if a believer is carnally minded, it's total separation from God. No fellowship whatsoever. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. He'll really live it up if he lives in the Spirit and attempts to please God. Or the Spirit, instead of going downward and doing the things the flesh wants to do, does the things that God wants done. Now he goes on. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Now, you and I have that kind of a nature. But if we have a new nature... That nature can respond to God. But that old nature, Paul says in verse 8, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You cannot please God in the flesh. These things that characterize the flesh, it's only when you and I yield to God and come to the place where he can use us. Now, let me read the translation that Dr. West has here of this section. But as for you, divinely loved ones, remember the words which were spoken previously by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there shall be markers ordering their course of conduct in accordance with their own passionate cravings, which are destitute of reverential awe towards God. These are those who cause divisions, They are egocentric, not holding the Spirit. Now, that is a marvelous translation. Now, in verse 19, Jude is describing again the apostate. He's given us so many descriptions of him in this epistle that there's no reason for us to miss him at all. And I think that you can test an unregenerate person, even a minister, that's unregenerate by the Word of God. As I like to use the expression, I use the Word of God as a Geiger counter. That's the reason I teach the Word of God on the radio, because when it goes out by the Geiger counter, registers, and I get a comeback from folk that listen to the program. Many have responded and have accepted Christ. Many tell us how it's actually revolutionized their lives, even as believers, and also their homes. And it has made everything different. But there are another group of people that think I'm a loony bird. I'm way out in left field, that I'm not just quite right, and that teaching the Word of God is a very foolish sort of thing. So the Geiger counter works, and it tells you. Now, what about these unregenerate? Now, here in verse 19, describing the apostates, he says, these are they who separate themselves. They like to consider themselves the church. The liberals took over the church and then said the fundamentalists were dividing it. Well, they wanted to separate themselves. And, of course, it was not the fundamentalists that divided the church. They were the ones that were holding to the great doctrines that the denominations were founded upon. And the creed of all the great denominations are sound creeds. They differ a little in some points, one from the other. But on the great basics, there was no difference at all. Now, that's one thing. But the word that I was concerned about is sensual. They are sensual, and the next is having not the Spirit. That is, they do not have the Holy Spirit of God. They're not indwelt by the Spirit of God. You remember when Paul got to Ephesus, that was the question. These people were passing as believers. They were not believers. They'd only heard the baptism of John. And he asked them the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? Why, they said, we know nothing about that, and they didn't. Now, when they did hear it, they have accepted the revelation as far as it had gone, but now they accept Christ, and they are born again and receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what about these when it says they're sensual? The word here is actually psychokos. We get our word psychological from that, and we speak of it sometimes as the soul of man. You see, man is a tripartite being. That is, he has a threefold nature. We are told over in 1 Thessalonians, the 5th chapter, verse 23, "...and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." Now, I'll not turn to it because we want to conserve some time today. But in the creation of man, if you read that very carefully, you will find out that physically man was taken from the ground. The 15 elements in the dirt are made into our bodies. And our bodies, when we get through with them and move out, and that's what death is, we'll be moving out of these bodies that we are living in today. These bodies will return back to the earth. And again, at the resurrection of the believer, why, the body will be raised, a resurrected body. It's sown in corruption. It's going to be raised in incorruption. But what happened to this man that God created? Well, he's given what we would call a soul, but that word's misunderstood. He's given the psychological part of him. That is, that part which directs him in his approach to the physical universe today. He gets hungry, he goes to eat, he wants entertainment, and he provides that for himself. And he actually may be a very generous individual and may be very amiable and very attractive, have what we call charisma today. Many unsaved people are like that. Very likable folk. I could wish sometime that all the saints were like some unsaved people that I meet, that is, on the surface. Now, underneath, they're different, of course. But this is man's psychological nature. But man also, God breathed into his breathing places the breath, or the wind, or the atmosphere, if you want to call it, the pneuma, the spirit, and that is man's human spirit. Now, that spirit is above the psychological. It's that which looks to God, that which longs for God, that which wants to worship, that which looks to God. Now, man has, therefore, a tripartite nature. He is a trinity, body, psychological side, and pneumatical side. That is, the psychological, that is still what is called here, sensual. Now, at the fall, what really happened? Here is man, and I like to think of it as a house with three floors in it. On the first floor is the dining room and the kitchen. On the second floor, there is the library and the music room. That's psychological. The first floor was physical. On the top floor, there is a chapel, a place to worship. There is the Word of God, because man will not understand it without the Spirit of God leading him, and the natural man would not want it. Now, what happened at the fall? The spiritual was on top, but at the fall, actually, man died spiritually, and the house turned upside down, and the physical got up on top. Man is primarily today, in its natural state, physical. It's meat and potatoes. It's self-preservation is the first law of life. Sure, he's like the animal world in that sense, physical. But man is psychological. He is self-conscious. He enjoys music. He loves beauty. And then he indulges also in immorality. That is the area. And that's the sensual part of man. Now the spiritual died. Man no longer had a capacity for God. In fact, the matter is, he is now an enemy of God. And he's described that way for us. You remember over in Romans, the 8th chapter, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, when you live in the lower nature, psychological, sensual, then you're dead to God. No fellowship with him. Fellowship is broken. John says, if we say that we have fellowship and walk in darkness, we lie. And many do that, by the way. Now, he says in verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's the reason Adam ran away from God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And you can't bring that old nature into obedience to God. You can't reform man. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now he tells the Romans, ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now that brings me to consider... What happens at a conversion? When you and I, who were dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually, well, you can walk around physically alive, but spiritually dead. Now you hear the gospel. The Spirit of God applies it to your heart, and you trust Christ. Now we say you were born again. May I say that spiritual nature now is reborn. And now you have a capacity for God. And not only that, there's no power in that new nature. So the Holy Spirit has come in to dwell in you. And that's what Paul meant here in the 8th of Romans. The Spirit of God dwells in you, since you're children of God. In other words, that's the mark, that you're a child of God. Holy Spirit's not something that you get 10 days after you're converted. If you don't get it at the moment you're converted, you're not converted, you see, because The Holy Spirit regenerates and born of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now is there not only to help you, but to interpret to you the Word of God. And the Word of God is no longer foolishness to you because a new world is open to you. A new life has been open to you. Now, there is a struggle that goes on. And that is what Paul talks about in the 5th of Galatians. For the flesh... Here warreth against the spirit, and I'm reading Galatians 5:17. For the flesh actually it's warreth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. Now here are these two natures: the old nature, this lower nature, the psychological part of man wants to turn away from God. The spiritual part now wants to turn to God. Do you know anything about that conflict in your life, child of God? If you're a child of God, you know about that conflict. There are times when you want to get away. There are times when you want to turn to him. That is the thing that takes place. And that's the reason most of us, we're like a roller coaster in our Christian life. Boy, we go up today and it's great. But then down tomorrow, and boy, what a trip it is, up and down. It ought not to be that way, but unfortunately, most of us have to testify to that. Now, Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians about the resurrection. And he has this to say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul psychological, you see. He was made a living soul. Now, he also says the last Adam was made a quickening, that is, a life-giving spirit. That's the difference between Adam number one, Adam number two, Adam in the Garden of Eden and the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He came to give his life that he might be a life-giving spirit. Now, he goes on to describe that. He says, how be it That was not first, which is spiritual. Adam was a psychological being, you see. But that which is natural, and afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And that, by the way, is, I think, the big difference between Adam before his fall and mankind today that's regenerated. We are today made sons of God and given a spiritual nature and a capacity for God. Man's highest nature at the beginning was God breathed into his breathing places, and that is a spirit that could fall. You and I have a nature today that is a sinful nature. We'll have it as long as we're in this body because it actually controlled this body, psychological. I remember when I first studied psychology, that they had a saying going then that psychology, the suitcase, was to study the soul of man. Then they got away from that and said that they just study the mind of man. Then behaviorism came along, and then Freudian later on, and took man farther and farther away from anything that was psychological or even mental that man was Actually, nothing in the world but a sort of a robot. He was like an IBM computer. You push a certain button and you get a certain reaction. And so the cliché that went around at the time was this. Psychology at first lost its soul. Then in the second place, it lost its mind. And I don't know whether it's got it back or not. Today, I do not follow psychology like I once did. It was my second major at one time. But the thing now that interests me is this, that here is the flesh pulling man down, and here is the spirit pulling man up. Now, these men never got in the realm of the spirit, Jude says here, they having not the spirit, they're sensual, they never get above the psychological state, so that today, friends, It's, I think, very easy for you to tell whether you're a child of God. The works of the flesh, Paul says in Galatians 5, are these. And if you're producing those, you're living in the flesh. Now, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. If you have those things in your life, you're a child of God. Now, the apostate does not have those things. He cannot have them. Now... I've spent a little time with this because I felt that this was very, very important that you and I might somehow or another understand ourselves. Why all the conflicts today and the frustrations that we Christians have? we got two natures, friends. And you remember, the psalmist says, we are fearfully, wonderfully made. Man is a very complicated creature today that's in this world. A man that walks this earth with a body that is taken out of the dirt, but a man that has a capacity for God. How tremendous. A man that wants to worship God and serve God, and a man that can become a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What a prospect is that. Now, having described here the apostasy that was coming, and the apostates that would come into the church. What can believers do? What can believers do in days like these that we are living in today? Now, he mentions here, beginning with verse 20 through 23, he mentions seven things that believers can do in days like these. The first one, and I'm reading verse 20, but ye, beloved... Now, you see again, he's talking to the believers, those... Beloved of God, but ye beloved. Now, what can we do today? Well, number one, but ye beloved, number one, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, building up yourself on your most holy faith means the study of the Word of God. And I just have the notion that since god gave 66 books that he meant that we're to study all 66 of them not john 3:16 all the time or john 14 how many bible classes go back and over the same teaching they teach john they teach romans and oh my they'll get to revelation i guarantee you that but what about the other 63 books that are in the bible Why don't we study them? Why don't we study all of it? Because, my friend, if you're going to build yourself up in your most holy faith, you must have the total Word of God. You can't build a house without a foundation. And when you get the foundation down, you're going to need to put up some timbers there that are going to hold a roof. And you're going to need a roof on it. You're going to need a side on it. You're going to need to fix it up on the inside. And you need all 66 books of the Bible if you're going to build yourself up in your most holy faith. Now, that's what we're to do in days of apostasy. Now, we've already seen this, and I'll merely refer to it. Paul and Peter urged that in the last days you're to study the Word of God. Now, you will recall that both Paul and Peter, Paul in his swan song which happens to be 2 Timothy. He said, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You are to study, and that all scriptures given by inspiration of God. In other words, the recourse that you and I have as a child of God in these days is the word of God. the reason that many fall by the wayside today is because the seed fell among stones. It didn't get deep root. What does that mean? The Word of God is the seed. My friend, unless you study all the Word of God, get down in the good rich soil, you're not going to become a very healthy-looking plant. And it won't be long until you'll be walked down and the sun will burn you out because of the fact that You can't stand up, and especially in days like these. Now, Peter, in his second epistle, and he's writing of the apostasy just as Paul did, and he says there that we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise In your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, don't just pull out one or two little verses and think you've got it, my friends. That is, I think, the tragedy in Bible study today is drawing out a few verses here and a few verses there, and you build a system. Why not take it all? It always reminds me of Lincoln when he was having his portrait painted. The artist kept definitely shifting Lincoln around so that wart on his face wouldn't show. And finally, after he got him adjusted so the wart wouldn't show, he said, now, Mr. Lincoln, how do you want me to paint you? Mr. Lincoln said, paint me just as I am, wart and all. And certainly there's part of the Word of God that you're not going to like. It steps on your toes. Many people say, I step on their toes. I don't step on anybody's toes. Toes. The Word of God steps on your toes, and people don't like that part. My friend, today we're to build up ourselves in our most holy faith. That's what we're enjoined to do in days of apostasy. And that's the reason that we've got one purpose today in the through the Bible, just to teach the Word of God. We're not promoting anything else but the Word of God. Building up yourselves on your most holy faith. It's the faith. It's not your own personal faith, but it is the faith, the body of truth that has been given to us in the Word of God. It was called there in the first of Acts, when the first church came into existence, they continued in the apostles' doctrine. That's the faith, that body of truth that has come down to us in the Word of God, Now, we must build ourselves up in that if we're to stand. And the second thing that he mentions here is praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. And you will note also that this is an unusual phrase. Actually, it occurs only one other time in the Scripture, and that is over in the epistle to the Ephesians. And you'll recall there, that when he mentions putting on the armor of God, everything is for defense with the exception of two items. And one of the offensive weapons is, he says in verse 18, "...praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit." And the first one that we were to do was to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And you can see that follows along here. First, we're to build ourselves up in the faith. And I think that we need a little sword drill, you know. The Word of God is the sword. You've got to have training. I recall that back in Texas many years ago at Dallas, a very fine man there by the name of Mr. Will Hawkins. He had the radio revival. And I do not know of any program during the Depression and afterward that ever in influenced people more in that area than that program did. I'm told that one of those very wealthy Texas oil men worth many millions, that's the first thing he did every morning was to get up and have a cup of coffee and listen to this man's program. I don't know that he ever did anything for it that amounted to anything. I really don't think he did. But he listened to the program as it went out. Now, one of the things he did on his program was have what he called a sword drill. And that was a test of the knowledge of the Word of God. And I thought it was about the best way that it could be used. Now, the first thing is to have sword drill, to listen to God first before he has to listen to us, because we can say a lot of foolish things. So first of all, we are to take the sword of the Spirit, but we need to build ourselves up in the faith. We should learn to use that sword. And then the second thing is praying in the Holy Spirit. And Paul says that in Ephesians here. It's part of the offensive equipment that we have in the Christian life to overcome. Now, praying in the Holy Spirit, I think, is a little different than handing in a grocery list to God about what we want. A great many things that we talk about, we want, we want, the gimme, gimme, gimme is the way our prayers go. And don't misunderstand, petition, as it's called in theology, is part of prayer. But how about praise? How about worship? Uh, prayer should be an adoration and praise to Almighty God. I think probably I ought to tell what the president of the Western Baptist Seminary, Dr. Rodmacher, told me one time. He was given the prayer meeting in one of the churches there. And it would have been pretty dead. It was like most prayer meetings in most churches. That's the deadest part of the service, of course, is the prayer meeting. And it ought not to be. It ought to be a real powerhouse. But unfortunately, it's not. So he announced the first night. He says, now tonight, we're not going to have any prayer requests. We're just going to spend the time in prayer praising God for what he's done for us and thank him for what he's done for us. And he said, you know, we had the briefest prayer meeting that night, you could imagine. It's amazing how many things we can ask God for. It's amazing how few things we can thank him for and how little of praise goes up to him. Have you thanked him for this day? Well, it's a glorious day in California (laughs) and I thank him for it. I hope you are having a glorious day. Oh, just have a good day and thank him for it. That is the thing that we need to do today. And prayer has in it just more than excitement and exultation. I think prayer is a real ministry and also a ministry that is not easy. Paul said to the Romans, you remember, he asked them that they pray for him, that you speak Strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. And that's Romans fifteen thirty. And in that passage, the word strive is agonize. At least we get our word agonize from that. We're to pray like that. And then Paul again says in Romans 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So that you and I today do not actually know what to pray for. We're like a little child. My grandson can ask for more things that he shouldn't have than any little fellow I've ever met. I take him with me to the store sometimes. And he wants everything that he shouldn't have. And I think sometimes, well, my, that's the way I pray. Just like a little child, I say, Lord, give me this. I want that. Give me that. And he doesn't do it. Why? Because I'm not praying in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. Now, we need to learn to do that. A missionary in Venezuela sent me many years ago a little card on which It gave a definition of prayer. It says, prayer is the Holy Spirit speaking in the believer through Christ to the Father. And friends, that's a very good definition of prayer. By the way, we need today to learn to pray. No wonder the disciples, having heard the Lord Jesus pray and their little paltry prayers, they came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Many of us need that. But there's very little instruction today about learning how to pray. But that's what we should do in days like this. Now, he goes on here and he says in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, we need to recognize that God loves the believer. All the way through this little epistle, we've had the word beloved. He calls the believers beloved. That doesn't mean that he loves them or they love him. It simply means they're beloved of God. I close many times with the word beloved. And I don't mean I love you because I don't know a lot of you. I know a great many of you, and I can re- truly say I love you in the Lord. But very frankly, I say it because you're beloved because God loves you. You see? You can't keep God from loving you. You can get out of that love. And my illustration, and I'll use it again, is the example of the sun shining. Now, here today, it's shining outside. And you can't keep it from shining. I can't stop it. But I'm not in the sunshine. You see, I'm inside right now. Now, you can put a roof over you of sin. And you can put a roof over you of stepping out of the will of God. You can put a roof over you of indifference. And you will not feel the warmth of the love of God in your life. But you can't keep him from loving you. So what he says here, keep yourselves out there in the sunshine of his love. Let his love flood your heart and flood your life. And that's needed in days of apostasy and in these days. Now he says here, the fourth thing, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. There was a man here in Southern California. He was a professor in a seminary. And there was some question about whether he really believed in the rapture of the church and whether all the church would be raptured. So I had lunch with him. I was going to ask him and had asked him to preach for me. And somebody raised the problem. And I had lunch with him and I asked him the specific question. Do you believe in the imminent coming of Christ? And he said, I do. I said, on what basis do you believe that he'll take the church out? That is, on what grounds do you and I expect to be taken out at the rapture? And he said, very definitely. He says, I expect to be saved because God extended mercy to me. And when he takes me out of the world at the time of the rapture, it'll still be by the mercy of God. Now, friends... As we have seen, the mercy of God, it's the fact that God today has a concern and care for you. And he has an abundance, he's rich in mercy, so that he was able to save you because he was concerned about you, saved you by grace, and he extended his mercy to you. Now, his mercy goes with us. We need showers of blessings and showers of mercy too. Mercy drops around us are falling, and we need all we can get today because it's by mercy that God would even put up with us. And then the next is that he'll be with us at the time of death. Someone asked Dwight L. Moody if he had mercy and grace enough to die. And he said, no, I don't, but when the time comes, he'll give it to me. Day by day, he supplies his mercy and his grace to us. Now, at the rapture, I'm going out. I'm going out at the rapture because of his mercy, not because of who I am, because if it depended on that, I wouldn't make it. I remember when I first went to Nashville, Tennessee, there was a very fine Bible class there. But a certain teacher had come in there and had taught the partial rapture of the church. Only the super-duper saints were going out. And that group there had taken up that, and it had led to a pride. There's no question about that. And they were wonderful people. They supported me in my Bible conference ministry there. When I brought in speakers, they always gave wonderful support. And I even had the privilege of teaching their class several times. But I always had the feeling, talking with some of them, especially the leaders, that they were going out at the rapture. There was no question about them because they were the super-duper ones. But I got the feeling that they weren't sure about me. But I want them to know and anybody else to know, when the Lord takes the church out, I'm going with you, friends. Whether you like it or not, I'm going with you. And I'm going because looking for that mercy. And I'm looking for the mercy. Now, will you notice, he moves on down here in verse 22, and he says, And have some have compassion making a difference. And what it should be is, instead of making a difference, it's rather this, who are in doubt. Now, there are a great many good, sincere people today that are in doubt. They do have their doubt. And we need to be patient with it. And I find it difficult having the minister being patient with some people. I remember in our Thursday night Bible study many years ago, a woman came down every Thursday night, I suppose, for six weeks with some question. I had a feeling she's trying to trap me or trick me. I got that impression. And I got, frankly, a little impatient with her. And always there was a lady with her, one of our members. So one night, I answered her rather sharply, and she turned and walked out. And this other lady had been standing. She came up to me and says, Dr. McGee, be patient with her. Says, that is a very brilliant woman. Says, she's in who's who. And she's been in practically every cult here in Southern California. And she's really mixed up. Now, she's trying to make her way out. And now, will you be patient with her? And I said, well, I didn't know that. And I will then. So after that, I really would answer her questions the best I could. And you know, I suppose it was three months after that that she accepted Christ as her Savior. I had a very wonderful letter from her when she was back in Ohio many years ago of how the Lord was leading her. Now, we're living in days when there's so much doubt cast upon the Word of God. And a great many people want to believe, but they're having their problems, and we do well to be patient with them. They're honest doubters. Now, in verse 23, "...and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire." Now, these are folk that we would say they are hopeless sinners, that nobody can save them, and I've been amazed at some of the people that have come to the Lord by radio, people that I have known, and I, frankly, would have given them up. But they get converted, and that is the thing that we need to recognize. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. What a tremendous statement. Now, over in Zechariah 3, 2, we have this, "...the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuked thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem..." rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? The very fact God said, I intend to save Jerusalem. I'm just taking a brand out of the fire. And there's apparently no one that's past redemption, certainly if they want to be saved. And then we have here the seventh and the last one, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Now here we are back again with that word flesh. This is the psychical part of man, the psychological part of man. This is the part that can go just so far. He can appreciate good music. And actually, they've tried to come up with a word for this psychological part of man. Soul, I don't think is adequate today. It doesn't quite express what it should. And there are those that call it the selfish part of man. Well, that's not a good word, because some very generous people have been sukical people. They are not Christians, actually. And then there are those that like to speak of them as animal. Well, that, I think, is even worse. They generally uh, attempt to satisfy the lower nature, but animal is not quite it. And there are others that want intellectual. Well, believe me, that's the worst one of all. Because that does not adequately describe these folk at all. And the child of God should hate even the garment. In other words, anything that the flesh produces, that this old nature produces, God can't use it. Anything that Vernon McGee does in the flesh, God doesn't want it. He hates it. And we should learn to hate it today. Now we have this glorious benediction that closes this little book. And I trust this little book has been a blessing to you. And I'd like to read it in a literal translation. And if you have your Bible, follow along. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you, that is to make you stand before the presence of his glory blameless with great rejoicing to the only wise God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory and majesty and might and authority before all time both now and forever. Amen. And this is a marvelous benediction. And if you want to know the place that Jesus Christ should have in your life, especially in these days of apostasy, here it is. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, the only God, He is God, and He's our Lord, should be the Lord of our lives, and glory should be given to Him. We should glorify Him. Tell how great he is, how wonderful he is, how mighty he is, and how mighty he is to save, and the majesty of him. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and might, all powers given unto him. This universe has not slipped in out from under his control, and all authority belongs to him. And whether you like it or not, You are going to bow the knee to him someday. All authority belongs to him. And in these days of apostasy, God's children need to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ and to try to hold him up before a gainsaying world. We leave this marvelous little book, and next time we go back to the Old Testament to the little prophecy of Haggai.